All right. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Rojas Reports. I've got my guest waiting there in the green room, so I'll bring Kevin on in just a minute. But I did want to do a little bit of business um, for those of you who are watching. Uh, you know, I've been trying all kinds of different schemes and everything uh, on Patreon and YouTube. And so I do want to make sure and be more regular about informing you guys of, of how this all works. So right now, if you're watching on YouTube, you're watching live, and I'm going to be opening those up to the public now. I was having that kind of behind my paywall for my super high levels, uh, Patreon and, and YouTube level. But, you know, because it's kind of a moving target, I'm working with the schedule of the uh, interviewee that uh, I've just decided, you know, whenever I do something live, I'll open it up for everybody to watch. And then uh, after it's live for a few days, so people can kind of check it out, I'll put it in the archives. And the archives, how do you get to it then? Well, you could be a subscriber on Patreon. There's two levels where you can just get the audio stuff or get the video and everything, or you can join right here on YouTube. So there's a little join button. It's always hard to point. I get the mirror that way. There's a little join button. You can hit that and subscribe. If you join, then you can get the archives and watch the videos later on. So do that right now while we're talking. In fact, probably in the chat right now, we've got some of our members. Hey, we've got all kinds of people. So that's how it works. But welcome so much to the Rojas Report. Uh, we have a wonderful guest today, and I'll bring him on right now. Welcome, Kevin Knuth. Hello, how thank you, you for having me. Thank you. Dr. Thank you. Kevin Knuth, a uh, professor of, uh, associate professor of uh, astro. Uh, astrophysicist at SUNY Albany. Did I stumble? I kind of tripped over your title there. That's great. <laughs> it's, it's more generally physics, but that's good. Yeah, thank you. So um, it's great. I'm, I'm really happy that you have gotten involved with uh, talking about, you know, the UAP topic. I don't know. Are you uncomfortable? I think I hear you use the term UFO quite a bit. Yeah, well, I guess I'm a bit older. I mean, for me, Pluto's a planet, and <laughs> they're UFOs. So <laughs> that's all there is to it. And how do you feel addressing that issue, the term UAP? Because it does seem kind of weird, almost. It's just kind of always been kind of weird to me that, and it's true that the scientific community, the, obviously the military uh, has picked up this term, and they're using the term UAP. The UK government did. Um, as opposed to UFOs. Now, if anybody asks you what's a UAP, you're going to say it's a UFO. Um, right. <laughs> is there an advantage to that term? What do you think about that issue? Well, I don't. At, at first, I thought it was rather silly to come up with a new term, and but just watching it, how watching how readily it's been adopted, and and how comfortable people are using it especially compared to UFO, I think that it's, I think that it's probably done what, what they intended. I think that it had sidestepped some of the taboo associated with UFOs. So it's, so in, in some, in some people's mind, I think that it's more that UFOs are all those old flying saucers that people saw in the 1940s and fifties. That's what Roswell was about. UAPs are what the Navy deals with. Right. And, and, and I think that's what, that seems to be how people's mindsets 
is right now. And I think that in that sense, it's been successful in, in getting people to think about these things and talk about them openly. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, we both interact with this group called this, the um, Scientific Coalition for UAP Research, and it used to be um, UFO Research, and we changed the name. And it is kind of funny because I used to be opposed to changing to the UAP, the reason being that it just means the same thing. And it was actually the Air Force that came up with the term UFO. Um, however... You know, I have noticed and we kind of were forced to do that because really it was just feedback, especially from scientists who were like, I don't feel comfortable with UFO. I don't want nothing to do with UFOs. UAPs, I'll get involved with something like that, but not UFOs. (laughs) That seems to be the case. It's so weird. Well, it's been really nice that you've been involved discussing UFOs and UAPs uh, and everything in between in the last couple of months or years, I should say. And I've seen now three of your lectures. And I just think it's invaluable to have someone like you getting involved with this. And one of the things that we did at the UFO Congress, which you were at, I've got my UFO Congress hat here, is we had a panel with uh, Diana Pasolka and Tim Brigham, also uh, people with their doctoral degrees in in, um, some sort of science. They're more in the social sciences. But it's not an easy thing. Like, what prompted you to kind of take a more active and, in a way, public role in all of this? That's a good question. Um, I've, I've, I've always been interested in these, you know, in, in UFOs. And um, way back to my teen years, you know, or even as a, as a you know, as an older kid watching um, in search of, you know, on TV and things like this. So I've always found them interesting and, um, and wondered about what, you know, what is the situation? And um, it was when I started in graduate school at um, the university, or I'm sorry, Montana State University in Bozeman, Montana, I started on my, that's where I got my master's in physics from. I started in graduate school there. It would have been September of 1988. And um, it was within the first couple of weeks that there was a cattle mutilation in the area where um, two cows were killed and surgically, whatever. (laughs) There were pretty horrible things done to these cows. Uh And it was very strange. It was not, it was not something you would expect anybody to do. And, um, and I was, I'd never heard of cattle mutilations before. I I come from Wisconsin originally. I've heard of cow tipping, but not, (laughs) not cattle mutilations. Who's, who would mutilate a cow? What a horrible thing. So I, on seeing that on the news, I was kind of confused by this and, and worried. And there, of course, there were the two main hypotheses were that there were aliens did it or they were um, Satanists, right? Because it's, I mean, there's <laughs> so many Satanists running around mutilating cows. Mm-hmm. So none of that made any sense to me. It just all seemed kind of ridiculous. And and um, so when we, when I went to the university the next day, 
um, we got to talking about this in one of our graduate student offices and the conversation kind of moved into the hallway and became very animated, you know, and, and well, you know, the rancher saw some weird lights in the sky and so he thinks they were aliens, but then other people think they're Satanists and, and, um, and I just remember thinking, this is all nuts. <laughs> and, <laughs> and many of the, the graduate students who were discussing this were all the people who had moved there from mostly from other parts of the country or from other countries. And our general opinion was, the real worry was, what kind of crazy place have we just moved to? Because we're going to have to live here for another three to five years, right, to get our degrees. So, um, and you know, so if there's Satanists running around killing cows, this is worrisome, right? And if yeah. well, if there's aliens killing cows, that's worrisome too. Or whatever the situation is, it's very odd. And something and weird is going the, on in Montana. Yeah, and so one of the professors came out of his office and happened to see us. And I, I don't quite remember who it is. I think I have an idea who it is. I'm not going to name names, but he came down the hallway to find out what all the commotion was, and we told him you know, what we were talking about. And he said, oh, yeah, that's very strange. You know, it happens from time to time, these cattle mutilations, and they never figure out what causes them or who did it, which is odd. And um, and we all agreed. And and then he said, but what's really strange, he said, he said, I have some friends in the Air Force who are up at Malmstrom Air Force Base, and they have problems up at Malmstrom with... Um, with UFOs flying over the ICBM missile sites and shutting down the missiles. And this just really stunned us. I mean, nobody, there was, what response do you give to this, right? Here's, you know, we're new graduate students. You know, here's uh, one of our new professors telling us that they have problems with UFOs shutting down ICBM missiles. And and to be honest, when he walked away, we we laughed like crazy. I mean, this and this kind of became an inside joke. You know, anytime somebody said something weird, you know, we somebody else would interject, yeah, but you know what's really going on is there's some <laughs> UFOs shutting down missiles up at Malmstrom Air Force Base. So I heard about this in 1988. This is 1988. Now, I don't know when um, Robert Hastings started being more public with his research on on UFOs shutting down nuclear weapons or appearing at hanging out at nuclear weapon sites. But I saw, I guess it was his press conference um, that he had in, what was it, 2010 or something like this? So it's, it's around 2010 that he had a press conference. I didn't, I didn't see it until a few years later, actually. I watched it on YouTube. I was give, um, preparing for a course that I was teaching an astrophysics course. And I had some students, I was talking about astrobiology and I had some students who went, wanted to discuss the possibilities of there being, you know, intelligent aliens that maybe we could communicate with them or they could travel to earth. And I, so I was just poking around on the internet just to, you know, find some mostly um, research papers and things on SETI. And I happened to stumble on the press conference on YouTube that um, Robert Hastings had, and um, and I was blown away. You know, I was like, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Wait a minute! He's talking. These guys are talking about events that happened. I think Robert Salas's, you know, encounter happened something like 1965, and um, and here I am seeing this press conference that was per uh, that you know happened in 2010, and 
And I was, and all I could think was like, I knew about this in 1988, you know, how, so, you know, that's 30 years earlier. I, I hadn't heard about this 30 years before this press conference. And I, and I just couldn't shake the feeling that this can't be nonsense. This has to be real. There's no way you're going to have professionals, you know, several generations of professionals working at a nuclear weapons site um, who make these claims that that's just not going to happen. Um, and I thought, I, you know, how wrong can they be? They're not going to be that wrong. Uh, we wouldn't be employing them to do something that important if they were that wrong. And so, so that really impacted me. Um, and that, I think I probably saw, saw the press conference probably around 2014 or so. And then it wasn't, you know, it's, you know, and then of course, um, Lou Elizondo comes out with this, is the ATIP revelation, you know, was, was what, 2017, December 16th, 2017. So it was only just a couple of years later that, um, that that had happened. And then I was like, whoa, wait a minute, this is, why? And, I, and all I could ask myself is why have we been ignoring this for 50 years? You know, these these sightings have been happening with the, I mean, these encounters have been happening with Air Force and with others, you know, 50, at least for 50 years. And we're all just pretending it's not real. Uh, that's, that's, that's madness. That's, that's insane. <laughs> you know, I thought somebody should be looking into this. Somebody should be looking into it seriously. This shouldn't be kept secret because when it's secret, it's compartmentalized. Not everybody knows about it. This is how, you know, this is how you run into problems. Um, this should be studied openly. So, um, and so just coincidentally, I, I had around that time, I had given a talk to our department on UFOs and, um, and probably the announcement, just the title of my talk had made it, you know, was on the internet to some degree. And I got a call from our media department in um, late May I believe it was of 2017 and somebody from the, an editor from the online journal, the conversation wanted to find a physicist who would write an article about UFOs for world UFO day. And, um, and they, they said, well, we, we'd like them to write an article about why people believe in UFOs, even though they're not, we know they're not real. <laughs> and this is what, I was told and I thought, well, I'll have to think about this, you know, for a little bit. And, and I kind of molded over, you know, slept on it. And the next day I thought, well, this is really silly. I couldn't possibly write an article about an article exactly like that because we don't know that they're not real. We don't, we don't know this and um, they ought to be studied really. And so I called our media person. I said, yeah, please contact them. I'd be willing to write a paper a short article on why scientists ought to study UFOs. I would be willing to do that. And um, the editor contacted me right away and was very excited. They said, oh, we never thought we'd find a physicist who would who would actually support these things. So so when we asked to have find a physicist, we wanted a physicist, you know, we wanted, you know, a professional scientist to, we kind of, you know, to make this easier for them, we thought to invite them to discuss why why people believe in them even though they're not real but we're more than happy to hear why scientists should study them so i wrote i wrote that article for the conversation and um 
and I labored over it for the better part of a week and um, and had, you know, my wife helped me edit it. Um, she helped greatly and some of my colleagues read it over and, and helped as well. And, and I worked very hard to make sure that, you know, I stuck to the facts and, you know, kept clear that we don't know what these things are. We are agnostic as to you know, their their nature, and um, and just really tried to drive home the point that scientists study things. This is that's our job. We study things, and we should we should be studying these things. And so I, I guess I felt by this time I felt very passionate about this. You know, realizing that the Navy. Um, you know, the Navy's been having problems, you know, they've been having problems at nuclear weapon sites for decades, and nobody knows anything about this. That's really, that's insane. It's insane and, and potentially dangerous. Um, we don't know what the situation is, and we need to know. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and then, of course, the, science, the scientist in me is curious. I want to know, I want to know what these things are. You know, what are, what are they? They, you know, from, from the witness sightings, they do, many of them do appear to be um, structured craft with really incredible flight characteristics and capabilities. And so how do you do something like that? So there are, there's a potential for a huge discovery here as well. And so as a scientist, you never walk away from the potential for a big discovery. You, you would kick yourself forever for that. Um, so, so I thought it was, I felt it was worth the risk. Mm -hmm. And one of the and things, one of the things that you've done, uh, oops, uh, there's oops, a little bit of echo there. That I think is really important and unique is that uh, you've kind of kind demonstrated of what sort of science can be done in this field. Because a lot of people have asked, well, is there even any science that could be done? Uh, but you have. And, and we'll get into that. But I kind of want to go in order. And what's kind of funny is the order of lectures I've seen are kind of opposite of kind of uh, a good narrative, I think, because the last lecture you did is why doesn't science look into this stuff, which was great. Uh, you did that at the UFO Congress. And I want to talk about some of the points you made there. And I think the first important uh, point is about the circular logic that kind of causes this catch 22 situation. Yeah, there, there's a good bit of circular logic that's been applied here, which is frustrating to think about as a scientist. Um, scientists don't study UFOs because they're not scientific. Why aren't UFOs scientific? They're not scientific because scientists don't study them. <laughs> that's really all it comes down to. It's really that it's a pretty tight circle, that, that set of that bit of logic. But that's really what's going on. Um, you know, no, scientists look back and say, nobody studied this, so it's not scientific. And so I'm not going to study it. And that's really not, it's really pretty ridiculous. Mm -hmm. um, and there are many examples of, you know, scientific theories that are now well accepted that were treated this way initially. Um, the theory of meteorites you know, rocks falling from the sky was was one of them. And you can imagine why people claiming that rocks can fall from the sky, why people would look at them and say, you are crazy. There's no way rocks are going to fall from the sky. You know? And um, you see, you can see why that would be a hard theory to accept. And it really wasn't accepted until you had a meteorite event 
that happened over a small town. I believe it, it was somewhere in Europe. I believe I believe France, perhaps, um, where the meteorite broke into several pieces and actually hit these pieces hit in different parts of the town simultaneously, and each one of them started a fire. You know, so the townspeople have to put out these fires, and then they discover this strange rock here. And there were multiple rocks found, each one found associated with the fire. So the geologists then looked at them and said, well, these aren't from this area. They're, um, they're clearly not from the area. So that it wasn't until you had an event where many people saw these things come in, many people saw them start fires, many people saw the rocks, and there were multiple rocks. It was just, you couldn't deny it anymore. And so, so then scientists look at them and study them and we learn about meteorites and that's really all there is to it that's a, and that's another good point because the other and this kind of uh and this will definitely be a thing because i want to talk about kind of the state of affairs right now and how science can and should play a role but uh you also talked about uh, the other aspect is then when you want to start to study a phenomena you have to prove that there even is a phenomena there um, when you, like you just mentioned, when the rock started falling and stuff caught on fire, they saw, oh, there is a phenomena here to study. Um, however, with a lot of other stuff, we just have anecdotal information. And I, like you talked about your, your buddy, Mark, who calls it anic data, but that really isn't scientific data. Um, so how do you justify something as real? And really what, what I think you made this point is that the Navy's kind of done that now. They've talked about UFOs being real. Yeah, that, that's been the big, that was the big news. The big news really wasn't those videos. Uh, those videos aren't that spectacular. Um, the, the pilot's description of the behavior of these objects are do not at all, that's not what's shown on the videos that we got to see, and which is disappointing. It looks like we were given the most boring parts of the video. Um, but but that's 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 exactly right. One of the differences that we um, one of the features that we use to decide whether something is a science or a pseudoscience um, in pseudoscience, your the focus is usually on trying to prove that something exists, that something is real, and the problem with something new like studying UFOs is that the first thing you do need to do is to prove that there is a phenomena here to study. And so a lot of your activity looks like um, pseudoscience. Now, now I want to be careful here because um, with UFOs, there is a lot of pseudoscience going on, <laughs> right? So, so there is a lot of pseudoscience there. And so that makes it even harder because it's hard for a scientist to come in and do science and and especially when the first steps are to prove that there is a phenomenon because the scientists will look very much like everybody else um, and and that makes it difficult now the navy has basically done this for us which is excellent um, they and and they've done so out of necessity they have a you know from my understanding they have a serious problem on their hands you can't have and, and, and I believe it was 2015, they had near daily encounters with these things. And we can't afford that. And some of these were happening in the Persian Gulf while they were going on, you know, on missions into Syria. 
you've got to fly past UFOs first and then you enter Syria and complete your mission and come back. But you have to be on your game in Syria. But your pilots aren't going to be on their game if they've got, you know, objects flying at their airplanes at thousands of miles an hour and doing barrel rolls around the cockpit. There's, you know, that's that's unreasonable. So the Navy had a real problem that it needed to solve. And we've, unfortunately, from, you know, my perspective, which I, you know, I'm not privy to most of the information that the government has. Um, I'm just, a, I'm, a, I'm a scientist, a, a public scientist. So, um, but my perception is that these things have gone ignored for 50 years and they've been ignored until there was a serious problem. And the serious problem seems to be the problem that the Navy has encountered with their pilots. And um, now I would have imagined that the nuclear weapon site incursions would have been a serious problem. Um, the, these things kind of worry me because you, you know, you have, can have a craft fly over an ICBM missile and shine lights down into it and then fly away and nobody does anything. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you want that information out public because it says to me that anybody can fly a drone over one of these ICBM missile sites and take photographs and shine lights on and nobody's going to do anything because they're going to say, oh, it's just one of those UFOs again. And Which we don't, don't believe exist, in that. So. We don't believe in that. So we're not going to do anything. <laughs> I mean, that's really what it looks like, and, and yeah. it's a little worrisome. Uh, I would have hoped that our, you know, our defense would have been a little smarter in this respect. Um, and perhaps, and, and, and of course, I don't know what they do do, and I don't know what they know and don't know. So it's, I, I can't really present a, a, a um, an objective, you know, picture here, but... <clears throat> But, you know, from somebody from the outside, that's kind of what it looks like. And I think the difference here, a lot of people are asking, I should say, welcome, everybody. Uh, we've got Rodrigo and Mark and Cart Cartola and Will and Sonia and, and uh, the Unidentified Celebrity Show and people all over. We've got Canada and and uh, UK, Australia. So welcome, everybody. And uh, some of them are mentioning some of the people who have done some science in the past. But these are kind of one-off individuals who have taken it upon themselves, um, like a Jacques Vallée or Dr. Eric Davis. People are mentioning some of these people. Um, and, and sure, they have taken it upon themselves to do this. But what's different now is that, to your point, it's kind of been officially, it's been made official that UFOs at least exist. It is a phenomenon. Even if you're a scientist who doesn't believe it's anything um, abnormal. Um, it's still, you know, then incumbent upon you as a scientist to, to demonstrate that, to say, Navy's got this all wrong. This isn't so weird. Here's the science why that's the case. So at least now it's legit, <laughs> I guess. Uh, yeah, the, the phenomenon exists. This is something that some people have to deal with. And they would like to know what it is. So now it's a simple matter of figuring out what these, what some of these things are. And of course, you have to be careful because not all UFOs are going, you know, even if some of them are alien spacecraft, they're not all alien spacecraft. Some of them are, are misidentifications. In fact, the vast majority are misidentifications. I don't believe that the Navy's misidentifying birds, you know, flying at their planes at thousands of miles an hour. I don't think that that's the case. But 
clearly, which is why what makes the Navy much more believable. But, um, but, but it is true that people do mis misidentify planets and think think they're a UFO or um, or birds. I've actually seen photographs. I'm a bird watcher. I've been a bird watching since I was five years old, so I'm very familiar with birds and and. There was a, a library of, U, in, of compelling UFO photos that I had had come across, and in going through those, I found three photographs of birds. So it was <laughs> to me kind of surprising, but um, but that's how it is. And a lot of these things are are misident misidentifications. Um, I have yet to see swamp gas. I've never in my life seen swamp gas hovering about doing whatever <laughs> it supposedly does. Yeah, so there there gets to be a point where the the skeptics explanations are far more ridiculous than, you know, the other, you know, the other possibilities. So it's it um but some of these things do appear to be structured craft and those are the ones those are the cases I'm interested in. Mm -hmm. Um and I think it was really interesting too when you brought up Earth lights. Uh, this whole, you know, you knew that the, oh, earthquake lights, yes, yeah, that the guy who was talking about the earthquake lights and doing that research, which was another kind of um, uh, something that people didn't believe existed until later on. Finally, the evidence came that there, you know, there were observations years ago, um, <laughs> which is really amazing. Yeah, mm -hmm. which yeah, is also interesting because some of these things are. I mean, even, of course, the UFO community was like, well, there's, it's not even proven. There are no such thing as earthquake lights. Right. Now we know there are. Ball, ball lightning is another example. Ball lightning is not well understood in the physics community, and, it's, and it is taboo to study ball lightning um, because it's such a weird thing that not everybody believes is real. So, so there are, you know, some of the explanations that people have put forward, you know, as you know, you know, that, oh, that was probably just ball lightning. Well, ball lightning is not really a thing either. Um, I, I, I feel that way when people say, oh, that was, it's probably just a mass hallucination. Well, yeah. there, there's no such thing as a mass hallucination either. So this is, we're, it gets and very And if there silly. was, then you're promoting psychic phenomena because there would have to be some sort of psychic connection these people would have. So Exactly, yeah. Yes, um, that's it, it. Gets to be very interesting when you look at you know the wide variety of cases and and possible explanations. And one of the issues is, I mean, the, I, and it's just so important. And we'll get back to why what the Navy did was so important and how that changes things. But um, prior to that, like we're talking about, to prove something really is a phenomena, you have to rely on a lot of anecdotal information or. Um, which, like you made the point, isn't really scientific data, and which I think is important for people to understand also. Yeah, it, it, that, that is important to understand. Um, the difficulty is that, unfortunately, in most cases, that's all you have to go on. And so the best you can do is to, you know, look at an anecdotal report and of what somebody says they saw or says they experienced and, and try to make sense of it. I mean, that, it's a reasonable thing to do to try to make sense of it, you know, and, but you have to keep in mind that people make mistakes and, um, 
and and there are fabrications and hoaxes and things like this too. So it's it's very challenging. But um, I like to in some of the more prominent cases, I've often asked myself, you know, especially when there's professionals involved, like pilots, where there's a real consequence for them being, you know, wrong or or even reporting these things. You know, the question I ask myself is, how wrong could they be? You know, how wrong can I expect that they're going could be? You know, is, you know, so even with the UA, you know, the UAP um, footage from the 2004 Nimitz case, I did, and presumably we'll talk about this a bit, but um, I did some work to estimate the their um, the acceleration and the end of that video. And um, to do that, I had to know the size of the object. Um, and of course, uh, there, we don't have data on the size of the object. We have anecdotal data from the pilots, um, several pilots, I think uh, up to six pilots who have seen these things. And then that one event, you know, on that day, um, who described them as being about the size of an F-18, about 40 to 50 feet in length and um, these tic-tac-shaped objects. And so I use that number, you know, 40, 50 feet. Now, the first question you ask yourself as a scientist when, you know, I'm done with the analysis and, um, you know, and when I did the analysis with those numbers, I found that at the end of the video when the, when the computer loses lock and the object flies off, off to the left, um, that, ex that I estimated that acceleration to be about 80 Gs, about 80 times the acceleration of gravity, which is really unreasonable. Um, it's still not the highest that's been observed, but in fact, it's on the low end of, of some of the actual data we have or, um, from either radar data or, or from anecdotes. But the first question I asked myself then is, well, that number depends on the size of the Tic Tac objects, right? So, and, and of course you think, well, how wrong could the pilots be? What if it wasn't 40 feet long and it was only 30 feet long? Well, then it's accelerating away at 60 G, which is still unreasonable. Um, you know, at what point does it become a, a more reasonable acceleration? Well, down when you get it down to around 8 G, maybe you might be able to imagine somebody pulling off something with a craft or a drone at 8 G. Um, but then the object would have had to be four feet long and only, you know, 100 feet in front of the plane, which wasn't the case. Um, the pilot's not going to be that wrong. Um, you're not, he's not off by a factor of 10 on the size of the craft, or the size of the Tic Tac. So I, I think that the, you know, using a 40-foot length is a reasonable thing to do. And... And to put that in perspective, I think you made the point that some of our newer aircraft, you know, fighter jets 13 g's they'll fall apart oh yeah you you can't most of our fighter jets you can't accelerate more than 13 g's of acceleration the wing the wings will rip off um missiles missiles can't maneuver at accelerations beyond 30 g they can i think their frames of um some missiles can withstand about 60 g's of acceleration but they can't maneuver and and under those conditions so so the fact that you have a video where this thing accelerated at 80G is really significant. Now, now I, I ask myself, I, I think, why, well, why did we, why did the Navy release that video and not one of the more exciting ones where like the pilots, you 
you know, Fravor described these things as bouncing around like a ping pong ball inside of a jar. I would love to see a video of that. Um, that's not been released. Nothing like that's been released. And I suspect that the, you know, the 2004 Nimitz footage that was released appears to be quite boring. I mean, the thing just sits there in front of the plane for most of it, and the plane zooms in, you know, they change the magnification a few times, and it moves around, and then, and then it flies off the screen. It loses lock and flies off the screen. And when it flies off the screen, that's visually looking at that as a movie, it's not that impressive. It's not until you do the numbers and you think that, well, the, the, the computer lost missile lock. You know, that's not easily done. These things are made to track missiles, and missiles can't accelerate very fast. So, so clearly this was a high acceleration. But I think, it's, I think we lucked out. I think that, you know, when they chose to release that video, the people reviewed the video maybe didn't do the calculations to figure out what that acceleration was. And... Um, and I believe that if I remember right, some of the metadata was missing. I think there was metadata to distance to object and that was actually missing from the video. So, so unfortunately we had estimates, fortunately we had estimates from the pilot as to how big this thing was so that we could get the, that acceleration. Mm -hmm. Some people were saying, you know, kind of criticizing, cause I think you posted that paper, uh, I think with Peter, Robert Powell and Peter Reale from Reale. Yep. SCU. Uh, and you posted it in your journal, Entropy, um, and they were questioning, well, how could you how could you call this like a scientific paper if it's mostly based off of anecdotal information? But I guess it's more of an analysis, though, um, and you have to take into consideration in this part, you know, it is uh, anecdotal information, but it's from uh, kind of a, in legal terms, it would be like an expert witness. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's fair. Um, the yeah, so to be clear, and this is a good place to be clear about this. Yeah, we did pu we published it in the journal Entropy. The um, I presented this at the um, Maxent 2019 meeting at the Institute for Plasma Physics in Garching, Germany, and. Um, so that conference was organized by the people at the Max Planck Institute. And they were now, um, they had already, I've, I've gone to that conference for 20 years. So I, um, I'm familiar with all of these people. And they had an agreement that year that the proceedings for the conference were going to be published by the journal Entropy. Um, the topics are the same type of topics. So that's, it was a reasonable thing to do. Now, um, and so I wrote up the proceedings paper with Peter and, and Robert, and um, it then went for review, um, was reviewed by um, several people uh, with, the, um, with the conference organizers as the guest editors. So the conference organizers made the decision to have the paper published based on the reviews that they received. So even though, you know, I, there's been some notes, you know, some things written, well, he had it published in the journal where he's editor-in-chief, so that uh, it's a little fuzzy, but but what really happened is it was, you know, yes, I am the editor-in-chief, but the guest editors are in charge of their special issue, and that's that's where it got published. So, <clears throat> so why did I publish there and not somewhere else? Um, basically, I used 
you know, some of the data analysis techniques that we talk about at that conference to analyze that video. And so I saw that as an opening for, this is my chance to get to talk about UFOs or UAPs to fellow scientists where I'm actually using the data analysis techniques that we're all familiar with to analyze these videos from the, from the US Navy. And I saw that as an opportunity. Um, but because I've been involved with that community for a long time, you know, I'm the editor in chief of that journal. So, you know, so skeptics very, you know, readily pointed out, wow, he got it published in his own journal and blah, blah, blah. But, but the paper was, was, was reviewed by others. And, and some of the reviewers had very good comments and that we took into account in editing the paper. Yeah. How did your colleagues take that? I mean, what did, what was the feedback <laughs> you got? <clears throat> You're laughing, so some of it must have been... Um... No, it's interesting. I think that, you know, of course people are skeptical, you know, and, and of course scientists are going to be skeptical, they, and, and they should be, and that's reasonable. I think I was, I was pleased. I did a very, what I felt to be a clear, careful job in the analysis and my presentation, and um, most of my colleagues were very supportive. They said, you know, they, I think their eyes were kind of opened and, and thought, well, then this is from the US Navy and this is really interesting. And yeah, you're right. That has to be about an ADG acceleration. And huh, well, what is this all about? What is, what's really going on here? And I think that their curiosity was piqued, which was exactly what needs needed to happen. Um, I, I did have one, one colleague, he's been a friend for years and still is, and he, but he's, he, he's very emotional and um, he, he, he stood up and he says, Oh, I can't believe you're involved with this nonsense. He said, he, he said, he said, you could, you could show me a UFO and give me a tour and I still wouldn't believe it. <laughs> and, and, um, it's such and, a weird thing to say, which kind of brings well, me to the next and, topic. Well, well, he kind of helped my case there. I, I, you know, and I, yeah. you know, because he said that and some of my colleagues yeah. were upset with him because he was like, Oh, you know, this was a good talk and that was good work. You should, you know, sit down and be quiet. But, you know, but I was able to play on this. I said, but this is the problem with with extreme skepticism. Extreme skepticism is its own religion. You you aren't going to believe it no matter what the data is. So, and and that's really the problem. And, and, and so so his statement, you know, I, I you know I it, it couldn't have been better. You know it it you know I you know if I was scheming, I you know I could have paid him a few bucks to say something like that so to make the point. But no, it was actually <laughs> him. It was actually him. He he said that and he believed it, and that's fine. But but and that, you and know, sort of, uh, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, and uh, but I was going to say, but there you know, but I do have other close colleagues, um, some of them not who weren't at that meeting, who have seen you know read by my paper and 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 looked you know saw the talk because it was recorded and you know, and who very strongly believe that these things are artifacts. Um, one of my, one of them is a close colleague, a close friend of mine at NASA. He's still at NASA Ames. He's been there for far longer than I had been there. I was there for, for four years. Um, and, you know, and he really believes that these things are artifacts and, and um, that's hard to argue. I mean, I have to, you know, I am going to have to, you have to think very carefully about how, what kind of proof do I need to convince 
him that this is not an artifact, that this is actually mm -hmm. a structured craft, what's going to be required. And I think, you know, in some sense that um, I'm, I'm lucky to have a friend like this because I can, you know, I felt I could bounce bounce these ideas off of him and and send him my papers or my talks to have him comment on them so I know what skeptics are going to say or think or a skeptical scientist is going to mm -hmm. say or think. Um, but he actually didn't want to have the conversation. He, he said, I've argued, you know, for years, I think he's friends with Jacques Vallée. And so, because they're both in Silicon Valley, right? And, um, and he says, I've had these arguments for years. I don't want to have them anymore. So I, you know, so it's too bad. It's unfortunate. Although in this case, I mean, we don't know much about the equipment that was used because it's classified. Um, however, <clears throat> there certainly have been plenty of, or I know of FLIR experts who've talked about, you know, you just don't see that sort of artifact, especially in this sort of high-end equipment, cutting-edge equipment, not like that. Those are some pretty big, blatant. Um, and, you don't, and you don't expect to have an artifact that the pilot can also see and follow with his plane, and, yeah. um, and that is being tracked by radar. You don't it's not it's not a single artifact there's something you know there could be something more complicated going on i think one of the more interesting explanations technological explanations that um one of the reviewers to my paper um actually mentioned he claimed that what if what if you had somebody shining lasers up and intersecting lasers so you're basically ionizing a patch of air and then you can basically move the lasers very fast and basically this ionized patch of air will move and this ionized air will be hot so it'll show up on an infrared video. You would see it on your FLIR camera. Um, it would be giving off light so the pilot would see it and um, ionized air will reflect radio waves so the radar would pick it up. And I thought that was an excellent hypothesis. Um, the problem is that there were the Navy is in control of that territory. They know there were no other ships in the ter in the area. Um, the objects, the tic-tac objects interacted with the planes. So if somebody is playing around with laser beams, they're going to have to be monitoring where the planes are and what the planes are doing so that they can have their fun. Um, but there were no other radar, you know, systems operating in the area. So now you are you don't, and and then there's no place to shine the lasers from. So there's a lot of a lot of problems with that hypothesis. I don't think it. You know, we argued in the paper that it it didn't hold up. It was a good guess, a nice try, but. Yeah, someone brought up another skeptic, uh, Mick West, and and asked if you had looked at his stuff. Although I know Mick West does not um, look at the anecdotal information, just the videos themselves. But there's not a lot of data you can get out of the videos themselves, it doesn't seem. You can't get any speeds or accelerations of the object without knowing how big it is or how far away it is from the camera. That's really the fact. And so we needed to use the estimated size you know, from the pilots. And yes, that's a weak point. But as I mentioned, you can then ask the question, how far off could they be? If they're off by a factor of 10, it's still accelerated at 8, 8 G, which is, which is a hefty acceleration um, mm -hmm. for a four foot object that's flying a few hundred feet in front of the plane that we still don't know how it's flying and you still don't see any evidence of propellant. So there's still the same questions are still in play. Mm -hmm. What is, what is that thing and how is it flying and how is it moving?
And you bring up the point, um, pseudoscience, uh, kind of your the definition uh, and the difference between regular science and and pseudoscience. It it can happen on both sides. I mean, on the extreme skepticism, as well as, of course, and what people usually think of pseudoscience is those speculating out in the public, which, like you said, there's a lot of that going on in the UFO field, but it can happen on both ends. And maybe explain that. What is the difference between pseudoscience and real science? Oh, gosh, that's a really um, You'd have to look at your slide? I'm going through my slides to remind myself because it's... I was going to say I should read it to you. (laughs) Yeah, so... um, Pseudoscience seeks confirmation, science seeks falsification is what you wrote. Right. That's, that's what it was. I knew that that was a really nice summary. Yeah. So, so yeah, pseudoscience, you seek confirmation. You're trying to confirm your theory, confirm the idea and science. We work hard to falsify things. You know, can I show that this is wrong? What, what experiment can I do to show that that idea is wrong? And you, um, and, and it's, it's, what doctors do when doctors are doing medical tests, um, you know, you have a, your ankle hurts um, and they write you a script to get an x-ray. And what does it say? It says R slash O, right? They write R slash O broken foot. Um, and so what does the R slash O stand for? It means rule out, you know, so doctors are, you know, coming down to making a diagnosis by ruling out other possible diagnoses. And that's what we do as scientists. So, so pseudoscientists aren't out there falsifying, they're out trying to prove their case, um, whereas um, scientists are falsifying things. So can I, can I rule out the idea that this was a structured craft? And, and that's a good question. So now you look at these videos and you look at those accelerations and um, another colleague of mine here at UAlbany, um, she said very, very correctly, she said, clearly you can't accelerate a craft at 80 G through the air without a sonic boom. So that rules out the hypothesis that it's a structured craft. And that's difficult to argue against, right? Because that's very logical. Um, the, you know, the argument against it is, well, well, we're hypothesizing that there are craft that can accelerate that fast and, you know, and do this sort of thing. But, um, so that would be what somebody who's trying to prove that it's an alien spacecraft would be having to do. Um, so, but you don't try to prove that something, a scientist doesn't try to prove that it's an alien spacecraft. We try to rule out other things and that's what we try to do. Mm-hmm. Or we present a hypothesis and you show, well, there is support for that hypothesis. Um, can we come up with something that will rule, rule out, you know, that's where people get frustrated with me, but it's the same thing when they send me pictures or videos or, you know, I'll, I'll say, I can't rule out that that's not a planet or a star. I can't rule out that that's not a bug or or a bird. And they get Bugs, frustrated. Insects, but insects are really interesting in videos. They come really close to the camera and it looks really I, impressive. <laughs> and, and birds. And I've done this. In fact, there's a video I have. Uh, in fact, I do it with this UFO. But a bird flying by will look just like that when they zoom by. So any, and this is what happens the most is people look at their vacation 
pictures and they and see something that looks like this yeah you know fuzzy in the background and they're like i didn't even see that ufo there's a flying disc but no it's just a bird zooming by very bird quickly and it, that's what it's it very, very easily could be a swallow and, and yeah it's just close and looks bigger and yeah so uh along the the lines with the data um and how things change right now is that, you know, it, it? what's interesting to me is that you talk about the importance of the Navy kind of making UFOs official, making officially making them a thing. And that, I know, was one of Chris Mellon's goals um, with his effort, you know, working with To The Stars. You know, he worked with the, the SSCI, the Senate Intelligence Committee, for those of you who don't know. And uh, so he's got a background doing this and he had this strategy, you know, he's worked with, with the Senate intelligence committee and he's like, uh, as soon as we can make this official and public that justifies the government then to say, Hey Navy, you, this is real. Tell us about it. You haven't told us about this yet. Why not? And of course their answer, which makes sense, I think would be that, well, we don't think there's anything to it. So that's why we haven't told you, or we haven't felt it's been important enough which is fair. And then they've just got to make that argument. Um, but the one thing we don't know is the data. So the Navy is saying, this is not Chinese. This is Russian. This is unidentified, but we have really very little to none of their data. We don't know what data they um, use to come to that determination. We have a little bit of it. Certainly they most likely use that anecdotal. Well, Certainly, they use the information you used in your report, but they likely had a lot more, but we don't have access to that data. Right. Nor do we even know what it is. Yeah. And, and unfortunately, even if we did have access to it, it wouldn't be scientifically useful in the sense mm. that you wouldn't have access to those instruments. You wouldn't be able to know the characteristics of that instrument to be able to you know, really pin down what's going on in the recording. And, um, and that would be challenging. And plus these, you know, these, um, you know, these videos weren't recorded in a controlled setting. You know, they're recorded, they're, these are being recorded on the fly while everybody is excited and, mm. and, you know, holy beep, <laughs> what, is yeah. what is this thing? You know, so it's not a controlled setting. And, um, and it's going to be extremely difficult to get any recordings in a controlled setting. Anybody, you know, I, I imagine, you know, I'm working with UAPX and we're, we're um, hoping to go out, uh, we're aiming to go out um, on uh, two research vessels out on the Pacific Ocean, just south of Catalina Island in the same area and, and look for these things. Just right over there a few miles. Oh, really? All right, right yeah. nice. <laughs> Yeah, so we hope to do this um, sometime next year, and um, but and we're going to do our best to record. You know, if we see something, we're going to record. You know, everything we can, but you know, but it's it, it, depending on how impressive the you know an encounter is. You know, I can't ensure that I'm not going to be like, oh my god, you know, and be. It's hard to stay controlled and to keep everything keep everything calm so that you're getting the best data you can and that you, you know, are un understanding the situation. This is one reason why I'm interested in using satellites. Um, some of these mm -hmm. objects that have been observed are, you know, a 40, 40 foot Tic Tac. Yeah, that's pretty big. You could see that by satellite, but, but there are reports of 300 foot disks. 
and things like that, you know, from pilots. And, um, and of course, the skeptics are like, 300-foot discs. Well, 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 yeah, but when, you know, how wrong is a pilot going to be? You know, when, you know, in some cases, you know, for the Japanese Airlines case over Anchorage, Alaska in 1986, you know, he said it was, it filled the whole, you know, his entire view was, was taken up by the object. Um, that's big. And so that should be observable by satellite and easily observable by satellite. And so um, can we look for these things? Can we find them? And and then and, and you might be able to take a ground-based sighting, you know, even from regular citizens um, who normally wouldn't be very credible, but you might get somebody who happened to get a photograph from the ground and then you go back at that time and day and look at for satellite imagery and there's your satellite image of the object. You can verify whether there's been a sighting or not. So there you can falsify, you know, you can falsify claims using using satellite data. And mm -hmm. I think that's that's about as objective as we're going to be able to be in the near future, I think. And and you did a you were featured in a space.com article just in the last couple of days written by Leonard David, a good dude yep. uh, I talked to. Um, and a great article where you were talking about that with Philippe. And the, uh, he presented that, I remember, at uh, the SEU uh, conference a couple of years ago. But the data right. is an important part. So let's talk about if you were working for the UAP task force. Um, now, presumably, I think what they're going to be looking for is mostly foreign technology, drones, that sort of thing. But they'll run across some unidentifieds, and we're not sure even what they're going to do completely with those. But let's say you're on the group. Uh, let's pass this to Kevin's unidentified group. Uh, how would you go about doing some scientific investigation on, on these things? Like you said, it might be really difficult, even if you're the... Um, United States Navy. Yeah, you you you're going to want to get high quality images of the objects in as many wavelengths as possible. You know, so you would want infrared imagery, you're going to want visual imagery, you're going to want you know you want to be able to pick up x-rays and gamma rays if they're there. You know, you're going to want to see all of these things. Um what kind of light, if the object's emitting light, you know, what kind of light is it? How, how is the light being generated? You can figure that out by looking at the spectrum of the light. So you're going to want to record spectrum, you know, and over wide, you know, very broad frequency ranges or wavelengths. And um, you're going to, and if you do have something like x-rays or gamma rays, you're going to want to check for other types of particles. Is this thing, you know, generating particles around it? You know, are there you know, alpha particles, beta particles, anything else? Um, so you're going to want to detect things like that. Um, there's there's a lot of things you would like to do in the ideal case, um, whether the, the Navy is or anybody is going to be set up with all of that equipment in any one situation is very unlikely. So that's it's difficult. Mm -hmm. It's difficult to study things that you can't control. And this is really why um, this topic is 
is as difficult to study as, as all the others that are difficult to control. Mm -hmm. you, have to, you, you can't just study supernovae. You can't study a supernova. I'm just going to go study supernova. Well, there isn't one to look at. You've got to wait till one happens, right? And so fortunately, they are common enough in, you know, in the nearby galaxies that we can wait for them and look for them. Um, earthquakes. Earthquakes. It's hard to have the equipment, all the equipment you want set up to study an earthquake. You know, when Friedman Freund was looking at trying to study earthquake lights, he has to have certain equipment set up where there's going to be an earthquake. That's hard to do. Um, so that's really the difficulty. If with not UFOs. impossible. If not impossible. And, and UFOs are, especially if, 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 you know, if you've only got a fraction of UFOs turn out to be something interesting like an alien spacecraft or an alien probe, if it's only a fraction of those, then then it's going to be impossible to have all of your equipment in the right place at the right time to detect these things. Mm -hmm. You're better off monitoring for them coming in, you know, from somewhere else or however they approach Earth or whatever. Um, so it's and extremely then, it's extremely challenging, and it's not clear that that there's any easy answer. I mean, this this yeah. really could take a long time to figure out. And the resources that you'd need would need to be extraordinary. Fortunately, the military has, you know, assets uh, and observation equipment throughout the the world uh, around right. the entire planet. And it would take that sort of uh, ability to be able to capture even probably a small amount of data. Right. Now, when it comes to the data, um, now you've been doing some science around this, um, mostly some computer modeling to um, kind of speculate or, or on the nature of the who might be coming here and, and their technology. Um, and I think that's really interesting. And the, what's interesting about that is it demonstrates this is some science that we can do right now, even without all this other data. Yeah, that's that's one of the things that I I wanted to I wanted to do something, and so it's I can't just go collect data right now. So you know, I really thought, what well, what can we do? And so one of the things I could you know thought about doing is I could try to model you know a civilization exploring some region of the galaxy, right? And and the idea then is to um, so what I what I had done in this project is I I um, modeled about two million civilizations and I kept track and they each had very they each had slightly different characteristics. Um, they had um, they could travel at different speeds or different accelerations. They could withstand the longer journeys or or some of them shorter journeys and things like this. And so. I just looked to see what would happen if you had a civilization that started colonizing other star systems and spreading out. Now, we're, of course, not at that point yet, but we're working towards that, right? And um, <clears throat> so after two million civil, um, simulations of this, I then looked to see um, in, 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 in the, my simulated galaxy, Earth is there. So I looked to see how many of those sim simulated civilizations actually found Earth. And so, and, and, and for those civilizations that did find Earth, I looked to see what their characteristics were, um, what allowed them to pull it off. So um, I 
not going to be rem remember all the you know results yeah. off the top of my head, of course, but the um, but the chance of finding Earth is very slim. Um, the it, it's it's literally down into fractions of tenths of a percent, um, and the kind of answering the Fermi paradox a bit. Yeah, the problem is the galaxy's big. <laughs> it's, you've got really, 300, really big. 300 billion stars, and and um, you're to find to happen upon Earth is almost impossible. And so that really, you know, that that to me was a bit surprising. It was much harder to find Earth than I expected it would be. Um, when I when I first just started the, the the project, I realized I had to literally go out to millions of civilizations before you had any number of them finding Earth. And the algorithms I used actually pared down and focused on civilizations that had a better chance of finding Earth. So um, that made it a bit easier. Um, but it it ended up being something like you know one out of you know one out of ten million one out of eight million chance of finding Earth. Um, and then they could then, but then once I had a set of civilizations that did find Earth in my simulations, I could look at um, what their characteristics were. So it didn't depend very much on their speed or acceleration. They just had to be able to go fast enough to get to nearby stars. That didn't seem to, once you could go much faster than others, that didn't do much for you. Um, they just have to be able to perform interstellar travel. That's really all the, that you needed there. And then it turned out that um, the probability for their origin turned out to be that they were within, they originated from within 10,000 light years of here, which is, which is a good distance. The galaxy is about, eh, it's about 150,000 light years across. So, so I use this to get some idea of if we do have aliens visiting Earth, what can we expect them to be like? And and so I have some answers there, which, you know, from these sim simulations, which I'm now working on writing up to hopefully publish. And um, so what would they be like? Well, they're probably from nearby. They're probably from within 10,000 light years of here originally. Um, they've, they're... Um, it turns out that they've probably been coming to Earth for a long time. They probably discovered Earth a long time ago on the order of um, more than 250,000 years ago. So certainly have known about Earth throughout human history. That's almost a certainty. And, um, and so there were some interesting facts that came out from that, that simula these simulations, which was quite fun. So... Um I do want to ask about first, I guess I'll ask real quick uh, this question that someone just posted and that's where I was looking up the details of, and they said, uh, why so little attention has been paid to scientific American changing their positions at UO UAP are deserving of genuine research. Um, I think there, that the article they're referring to was the one by, um, Ravi. Jacob Misra and yeah. Ravi. Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. Although no, it's that, an opinion piece, right? No, they're both they're both um, SETI researchers. And um, after that article came out, I contacted them. Well, we were actually, I was actually presenting 
at a meeting that they helped to organize. Um, oh, wow. They organized a session, a SETI session at the European Astronomical Society meeting this summer. And so their article came out about the same time. And uh, Philippe Aylaris and I had already um, had our abstract accepted to be presented there. So we were going to be talking about looking for um, techno signatures, we call them, you know, extraterrestrial or techno signatures using satellites in the near earth environment. And, and, um, and so since they had organized the meeting and they had just published that opinion piece, I contacted them. So we've been in touch and, and talked about what, what can be done, what needs to be done and things like this. So, so, so there are more scientists now getting interested and that's really exciting. Um, well, and you and I are both affiliated with um, SCU, the Scientific Coalition for UAP Studies. So this is another group that of scientists that are interested in studying these things. Um, when it comes to the scientific uh, community when it, and, and the UAP task force, what ideally would you like to see? Because we have no indication, at least we do have a little bit of indication that it doesn't seem like they're going to be in a kind of a mode to regularly share information with the public. Um, there's been a couple of statements that uh, their work will be classified and their results will be classified. But right. I mean, would you like to see some of that information shared with the public, perhaps the scientific community? I think it would be in their best interest to share it with the scientific community. Um, the, and, and in fact, um, we, I had written a letter with Jacob and Ravi and, um, and Matthew Shadagas, one of my colleagues here at UAlbany, um, to send to those on the UAP task force to request that they share information with the scientific community. So I, I think that's very important. Um, it's unfortunately, it's very easy for the people who do people who do classified work have this mindset that the most important work that happens is classified work, and that's unfortunately it's not not, not really true. And part of that comes from drinking their own Kool Aid. They have to convince people that they have to convince the the people who give them money that what we do is the most important thing, and so they end up believing that. Um, but if you look at breakthroughs, breakthroughs don't happen that way as often as they do other ways. Breakthroughs are kind of random. Um, you had um, the airplane was developed by two bicycle mechanics, right? Um, the theory of relativity came from a patent clerk. Um, these are these are you know people out in the community. So um, <clears throat> so it would be in their best interest to have the scientific community working on this problem and thinking on this problem. In fact, in fact, I would be supportive of something more like a Manhattan Project style effort where we are, we take this seriously and let's find out what these things are. I mean, if it, if it really does turn out that some of the, even one of these objects was an alien probe, that's something we're going to want to know about. And we, something we ought to take seriously as a planet, as humanity. Um, I know, you know, 2020 has thrown a lot at us um, this year, but, you know, if it turns out that we find out that there are aliens visiting Earth, that's probably the biggest problem we'll have on our hands. And I, and I don't mean 
problem, you know, and I say problem, but it, it's a potential problem. You have to make sure it's not a problem. And the only way to do that is to educate ourselves. We have to find out, you know, what are these things? You know, if some of them turn out to be alien craft, then where did they come from? What are they doing here? What do they want? You know, are they just studying us? You know, do they do they appear to be friendly? You know, that's good, but I don't know if I'd, I'm not willing to, you know, is that a risk we're worth taking? You know, just to say, well, they haven't done anything yet, so they're probably fine, so we'll just ignore them, right? And, um, what seems to be potentially what is going on. What's going on, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, you know, but they don't we don't do that about Russians. I mean yeah. <laughs> Russians the haven't Russians. done anything to us for a while, so we'll just kind of ignore them and I'm sure it'll <laughs> yeah. be fine. No, that's we know better. And yeah. um, and I think that I don't I don't like I don't like painting them. You know, if if they exist, if they are somebody visiting Earth, I don't want to paint them as a as a threat. We don't know that they're a threat, but but anything is a potential threat. You know, and you know, you need to just we need to be informed. That's mm -hmm. that's what the situation mm -hmm. needs to be. I agree because I think that's the best case scenario with what's going on right now. The worst case scenario is that the Senate Intelligence Committee gets their report. The, the public facing one maybe has a few stats, not much. Then the Senate Intelligence Committee says, hey, looks good to us. You guys got this all well taken care of. Uh, keep on keeping on. And then we're all still left in the dark. Um, right. I think the best case scenario would be some cooperation with, a, with an organization where they are sharing data so yeah. that there can be some scientific, transparent scientific investigation on the true anomalies but it's hard to separate that from the data that should remain classified that could potentially um you know pose a, a genuine threat right yeah i think well i think there you know there's several difficulties if you do have um alien craft visiting earth there's the technology aspect there this technology is going to be powerful and um and there's going to be people who are going to be worried about it falling in the wrong hands. So they won't want to share information. But the, the difficulty is that other countries are looking into this too. We're not the only ones, you know, collecting data here. So um, it really, I think it really is better to share. Um, it'd be far better for all of us to get the technology at the same time than for any <laughs> one of us to get the technology over the others, I, I think. But I'm not, not an expert in this. So where do we go from here? Where For those in the UFO community, for instance, how do they advocate for this? I think that, you know, calling the White House and, and saying, we know that you're making deals with aliens, let us in, <laughs> is probably not the way to go. It hasn't worked in the past. It's difficult. I think the... Um, <clears throat> The UFO community as a whole has a wide variety of beliefs that are not scientifically founded, and we don't have the evidence. The evidence does not exist for those beliefs, and um, it's unfortunate. I would like there to be evidence for some of these things, and some of these beliefs are interesting, and I find some of this fascinating. But um, but I call it a mythology. You know, I try to understand this mythology. I like to. You know, I like to hear about some of these anecdotes, and some of them are really fascinating. But, um, 
but it's important to realize it's important to keep in mind that this is what you know what we know is different and um and for me it isn't about belief and i've had people ask me in interviews do you believe that aliens are visiting earth and i and it doesn't matter what i believe i i want to know if they're visiting earth i want something more concrete um more powerful and um i think the best thing anybody can do is to talk to their senators and congressmen and um, try to um, emphasize that this data should be shared with the scientific community. Once you get, once you get scientists involved, nobody's going to be able to stop them. I mean, you're, and, and once scientists, you know, if once we figure out how to collect data on some of these things and we find out it's interesting, the discoveries are going to happen and they'll happen fast. I mean, scientists will dive on board and they'll stop, drop what they're doing and they'll run to solve this problem because it's one of the most interesting, it's potentially one of the most interesting discoveries ever. So mm -hmm. who wouldn't want to work on that? And, and speaking of myths, I mean, a lot of uh, some UFO people will hear that and say, oh, yeah, right. Like who, NASA? They're lying about us, about everything. Everybody's lying. The scientific community is hiding everything that whenever they find something uh, and alien bodies, they just hide it. You know, they believe that the, the entire scientific community essentially is part of this, this cover-up. Whereas, um, I argue, the opposite, especially like with NASA. I mean, the NASA has a lot of citizen scientist um, programs, which are very successful. People are finding meteorites and, and comets and getting them named after themselves and all of this sort of thing. Um, science, especially in astronomy... It doesn't work the way that conspiracy-minded people think it does. No. Yeah. I That's mean, how important is data sharing amongst scientists, especially when it comes to, like, astronomy? Oh, um, it depends. Um, data is usually pretty freely shared. Um, the... I've I've found you know my colleagues to be quite helpful. You know some of the some of the data is open. So for example, I do work on on characterizing exoplanets, planets orbiting other stars, and we use data from the um, Kepler Space Telescope, and that's all that's all online. I mean anybody can go. You you could I can show you how you can go and download data from mm -hmm. the Kepler Space Telescope. Sure anybody can. <laughs> it's all online. It's it's you know and and it's. It's produced by NASA, it's been paid for by the American taxpayer, and it's freely available to the American taxpayer. Anybody can, you know, it's freely available to anybody on the planet, really. And um, so and that's the data I use, you know, to do my work on exoplanets. But, you know, sometimes we need other data. And so I have in the past contacted, you know, colleagues and said, is there, do you have any data on this star? You know, we'd like to get some of these measurements from this star. And and usually it's like, no, we don't. But you know, I have a little extra time on the telescope tonight, and I'll, I'll swing over and I'll collect some data for you and send it to you in the morning. I've had that happen, and so they're more than willing to do that. And people are generally very eager to work together. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time. Um, I don't. I think we've gotten to most of the topics everybody's been talking about. They've been loving it and having a great time. I did want to show uh, one image and let me see, let me get this up and it, it's fitting for, 
the time that we're in, and you'll see why when I bring this up, because this here was one <laughs> of your slides, and I love it because it's almost um, Halloween, and it says here this was your display in your yard for Halloween. Was that last year? Uh, no, that well, this photo was taken a few years ago. I've, I've I've had the UFO put up a few years in a row. Yeah, <laughs> it's in Are my garage up this year. Right now. Uh, probably not this year. I'm a little. I'll be honest. My my neighbors all ask me if I'm going to put it out, and they seem to be eager for it to be on display. But I'm to be truth be told, I'm a little UFO'd out at this point. <laughs> <laughs> I, I had had first built this as a project with my you know my son and daughter a few years ago before I really actually started working on UFOs. But now I think I. Now, that was a little too close to home, and it feels a little weird. <laughs> I don't want people to, my neighbors are going to think he's a real nut. He studies UFOs, and he puts a one on his lawn um, all the time. It's so funny you say that, because I shy away from, like, UFO shirts and T-shirts and stuff for the same reason. And it's <laughs> like, you know, I, I don't want to be that guy, because just because I look into it doesn't mean I'm obsessed, and I don't want to look like I'm obsessed. That's right. Something. That's right. That's funny. Well, that's great. That's really cool. Well, thank you very much. I mean, right now in this time and age, I mean, it's very exciting, obviously, and, and it, you seem to enjoy getting involved. And I've noticed, you know, at the Congress, you did get purchased a T-shirt or two. Um, I, I, my, I have a sweatshirt. Yep. <laughs> yeah, which are they're pretty cool. So, I mean, how do you, in your mind, uh, you know, a lot of people in the UFO community, for example, believe that, you know, this is all leading to some kind of major disclosure of the UFO in the hangar and the, the Roswell alien. Um, people in the public, I think a lot of people in the public, like your colleagues that you've been talking about, don't know what to make, heads or tails of what the heck's going on with all of this. Um, but then you have the Senate Intelligence Committee saying, okay, we want to know more and we want you to provide the public with some more information. Uh, where do you see all this heading and what is your, do you have a positive kind of outlook towards, towards where we're headed with all this? I, I do generally, I think that I, this is all, this is all positive. Every, every time there's some kind of disclosure, anytime another pilot comes forward, anytime we have one of these things happen, it seems to have a snowballing effect. More, more people get involved, more you know, I get contacts from more scientists. Oh, I saw you study these things. What what can I do to help? You know, what what can what could I do? And I think there's people who are really interested. And so I think that I think that we very well will will eventually get to the bottom of this and we'll find out what's going on. Um, is it going to be what you know some of the people in the UFO community thought was going on? I don't know. You know, we'll we'll find out. I. Um, I would be very excited if there were, you know, there were, we were being visited by somebody from, an, you know, from somewhere else. I think that would be very exciting. Of course, it would be one of the biggest discoveries in human history that we're not alone. And, and, um, and then, of course, the fact that they have craft that can travel to other stars means that that's something we should be able to pull off, too. And that I find also exciting. So, um I am hopeful, and I think that 
uh, I think there is there are some questions that need to be answered here, and I think that you know scientists should get involved and look into this. But I think it's important to keep in mind that um, we don't know we don't know what you know these these especially these really anomalous, interesting cases are. We don't know what these objects are, and to prove that they are. You know, to determine whether something is extraterrestrial is actually very difficult to do. It's not going to be easy. Um, I often joke that, yes, you can do an isotope analysis and things like this, but there's always, you know, going to be some question. And I joke with my, you know, friends and colleagues that it's almost going to take dragging a living alien kicking and screaming off his spacecraft and holding him up for everyone to see for people to finally accept, oh, that oh, this is what's happening, you know, and I think it might just take something crazy like that for people to, for, for that to be, um, to be believed if that's the, if that is the case of what's going on. And um, I get, oh, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say, and whether, you know, whether we do, whether our government or other governments do possess crash craft and, and technology and things like this, that, that's an interesting question, and I and you know, and I'm on the fence. I'm not sure what I believe. I I worry because the number of crashes appears to be quite high, and um, I would worry about their ability to fly their <laughs> spacecraft if they're crashing that often. Yeah. Um, so so I I'm very skeptical that there really are that many crashes, and 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 if 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 any, and so um, but. Yeah, they'd be happening all the but time. Yeah, they would be happening. The all the time. They're like, hey, can you jumpstart me? We got to. <laughs> That's right. But I guess yeah. the last question would be because now that you've mentioned all this, the other aspect is if that is true too, they've got the UFO and the alien in the hangar, uh, because of the nature of the, the more secret, the less people involved and the less scientists involved, most likely then there isn't a lot of science being done. Um, if that's my, my guess is there's very little known if at all, if, you know, if, you know, if they are working on, and if they do have crash craft, if they do have data, I'm guessing that very little is actually known about these things. And it, it's probably so compartmentalized. It literally is going to be a handful of people. Mm-hmm. And Which is um, the scenario that Eric Davis gave, uh, who is a contractor and, and he says, that's what he hears out yeah. there. So who knows, I guess, huh? Yeah, it's not, you know, it, when we say things like the government knows, well, the government isn't really a thing. <laughs> so yeah. it's a not, that's a poorly worded statement. It's, it's there are, there, there may be people who work, you know, in for the government or military or defense contractors who may know a few things, but, but they probably, you know, you probably have several different sets of people. Each group knows, you know, each group is just a handful of people who knows one little piece of, of something. And, mm-hmm. and they probably don't communicate and probably can't put it all together, which is really the problem for, you know, of that's what happens when you do work like that and you don't collaborate. All right. Well, thank you so much. I think I've had some sort of missing time experience because it's been an hour and a half and it feels like oh. it's been 15 minutes. <laughs> I know. I can't believe the time flew. It's been great fun. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's been a great time. Thank you so much uh, for joining and we'll be in touch. 
And I guess, is there a website or anything that you want to send people to look at? Um, I, I have a website with my research and some of my exoplanet work. It's at um, Knuth, which is my last name, K-N-U-T-H, lab, L-A-B, dot, dot org. And you can go there, stop by, and see what I'm doing. I don't have any of the UFO stuff there yet. I probably will at some point. All right. And uh, and it is pronounced Knuth. I think I've asked you that Knuth. before. But it's funny because I had a meeting. Well, we had an SU meeting, and your name came up a couple of times and things you're helping out with. And some people say Knuth. Some say Knuth. Uh, yeah, some it's Scandinavian pronunciation, so the K is pronounced Okay, great. Thank you so much. And I guess people can look on my social media to see that story from space.com that you were in recently, a great article. I think that was a, a really good one. And uh, if you enjoyed this interview, please push the like button and also subscribe to the channel. Because if you subscribe, you'll get notified, especially if you hit the little bell whenever I do these live streams so you can pop in. And like I said, the live streams, you can come join, communicate, get involved with us and uh, ask your questions and interact. And then later these do go into the archive. Um, so thank you all for joining us. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thank and you. And we'll be in touch. You have a great evening. All right. Thank you. You too.